Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. It's getting harder and harder to trust our money. Uh, if you're old enough, you might remember the phrase, sound as a dollar. It meant very safe, something you could count on. Uh, there, there was a time when the American dollar was a reliable bedrock of the world's economy uh, and a dependable currency to be admired and aspired to by other nations. Well, that was then. And now? Well, I, I believe we've got a lot to be concerned about our money, and I break it into roughly three areas. First, domestically, uh, owing to reckless federal spending and a weak need Federal Reserve, we have rising inflation, rising housing mortgage rates, which will have a big effect on housing prices, regional bank failures, and growing concerns about where to put our money. Um, internationally, thanks in part to our sanctions on Russia, and the weaponization of the dollar, it's our dollar's world reserve currency share has fallen to less than half. It used to be 75%, and we'll talk in a bit about why, why that matters and why that puts the United States potentially in jeopardy. Uh, the third area, and the one I'm most concerned about, is how our financial institutions and our regulatory agencies are being weaponized for political purposes. The so-called ESG investing, Unbanking industries like hydrocarbon producers and the push for a central bank digital currency, which could lead to a Chinese-style social credit system. All these ought to be big concerns for us, and we're going to talk about uh, what those are and what they mean for us uh, during this show. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here, and to help understand the issues, my guest today is a perceptive policy expert, and important to me, and in, uh, in the arena of finance practitioner. Uh, Chris Icovella is the president and chief executive officer of the American Securities Association. His deep expertise in the equity, fixed income, and derivatives markets, as well as growth capital and wealth management. Prior to becoming CEO of the ASA, he was the CEO of the Equity Dealers of America and director of global government affairs at Bloomberg LP. Uh, before that, Chris worked as a security bond broker, on a fixed income derivatives desk, and as a structured finance, capital markets, and merger and acquisitions attorney. Chris, I'm delighted we're finally getting together. I am as well. I've been following your work for a long time now, and I'm very impressed with the, uh, the leadership you're providing at ASA because it's a, it's a collection of regional security firms around the country, but I think you, and they obviously have financial objectives. But I think you've been a real leader, a real thought leader in the, in the, in the policy things we need to be worried about as regards our freedom and, uh, and, and as I put it, the American way. <laughs> well, thank you. So, Chris, there's, as I said, there's a lot to unpack here. What, uh, what do you think, where do you want to start? I think you, you hit on a lot of very interesting points and some very important points, especially as it relates to <clears throat> focusing on the administrative state, the expansion of it. I think uh, over the last two years, we've seen uh, more rules than we've, we've ever seen before. I think the amount of paper, the amount of costs that are being heaped on companies, not just in the financial services space, but in every sector of our economy, uh, are far outweighing 
what their productive uh, capacity should be. And so what that leads you with is lawyers, accountants, professional services firms, these people are getting rich uh, and shareholders and companies have less money to spend on research and development, on hiring and on job creation and things that benefit our, our, our economy. And that's not what the administrative state was made for. It was made to provide rules of the road that were simple to enforce them so that uh, most of the organizations that are governed by those rules can, can operate freely and on a fair and competitive playing field. And what we see now is a, just a massive tilting of the scales. Well, I'm not even sure the state as the founder envisions it would, would even be remotely called the administrative state. <laughs> what was the federal budget? Was recently as 19, uh, I think before the Civil War, it was as small as 3% of the, uh, of, of, of the economy. So you're you're in the thick of it with the uh, with your with your group ASA. Uh, flesh out for me what you mean by the regulatory creep that's going on in these. Um, I guess it's the Securities Exchange Commission would be a good place to start. Well, that's a perfect place to start. Securities and Exchange Commission is run now, uh, currently by its chairman Gary Gensler, and he's undertaken a very ambitious regulatory agenda. Over fifty-five. He came in from Goldman Sachs. Uh, he previously worked at Goldman, yeah, but he's yeah. been in government now in three different administrations and okay. was also chief financial officer of the Hillary Clinton uh, campaign. So he does have a political agenda. Uh, I, I would you say betcha. so, Okay, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> yes. I, I wanted to flesh it out a little. Yes, he does. Uh, and so with 55 new rules, without a mandate from Congress to be writing any of these rules, you have to ask yourself what what's going on here. And I think you just answered the question there. There's a political agenda that's being introduced into our financial markets. Uh, it's designed to crimp private capital. It's designed to, uh, we have a climate disclosure rule that leaks into companies that are not public companies. And I think that uh, from the conversations I've had on Capitol Hill with members, uh, there are people who are extremely concerned about the creep that that's going to have uh, in our economy. Farmers. Uh, in, in parts of our economy that the SEC has no business regulating. And then he claims that he has to do this because investors are clamoring for this disclosure. But it's not investors that are clamoring for it. It's Wall Street asset managers, investment banks, and institutional investors who adhere to uh, the ESG agenda, and they don't really care how much the, these costs impose on shareholders. And that's where we come in, because our mission is to promote investor trust and confidence and get our uh, companies and municipalities that we work with access to capital. And when you put rules like this on, the climate rules are estimated to cost $8 billion, and that's in their own estimates. The climate rules alone. Alone. And that, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a, massive, uh, a massive amount of money and to impose on, on shareholders. Well, for those of us, I'm not, I've, I've been insider on this forever, decades. It's changed so much. I mean, when I was in Wall Street, Wall Street finance, banking in the 70s and 80s, we pretty much focused on, on doing business the old way, trying to make a profit, doing deals, that kind of thing. And, they, and Wall Street was characterized pretty, I remember it was the decade of greed, the 80s. Uh, now I might, call it, I might call it the decade of the woke. And I don't think people quite understand the extent to which the major 
investment managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, maybe not so much Vanguard, but certainly some of the others, and the proxy advisory firms, ISI and uh, was it Glass, uh, Glass Lewis, uh, are all totally woke, and they're pushing environmental, social, and governance agendas on public companies. And unfortunately, a lot of the public companies are fairly receptive. And, and who gets hurt? I think the investors get hurt. You want to amplify that? I think I, I, I think I've got that right. You do, and and I would add a couple a couple more uh, folks to that mix, which are the rating agencies. The, their participation in pushing the the ESG agenda through through ratings is going to start to actually uh, tangibly harm the cost of financing for states, for municipalities who don't go along how with does it. How, how so? Take a state like West Virginia. Right. West Virginia makes money off coal. <clears throat> its, its demographics may not look exactly like uh, the S&P or, or Moody's or the, their ratings grid wants it to look. And so they take a look at the financial status of the issuer and whether they can have an ability to repay on projects and raise financing in the capital markets. That's the way it used to be. Well, now there's other issues that creep into the, the underwriting criteria that leads to what the credit rating is. And if your credit rating gets downgraded because of an ESG factor, it's going to cost the, the citizens of that state more money to raise capital to keep up. So the rating with, agencies are now rating companies based on their ESG? They scores? are putting ESG into the analysis, yes. Let's break down ESG, environmental social governance. What, Seems to me the big piece of ESG is the environmental piece in terms of the cost to shareholders. Uh, yes, I, I think I, I would say I would back up and, and say it like this to your audience. Previously, when you when you were on the street and in, in your career, your job was to create value for the company and ultimately benefit the shareholders by maximizing their investment. That's what your job was. Now, your job is to try to do that as well as handle political issues that have been allowed to be thrust into the boardroom because shareholder proposals are demanding that companies, that their senior management, that the boards take positions on climate, on guns, on abortion, uh, on racial issues. These things are not part of why somebody invests in a company. People invest in a company to build wealth for their family, to try to make enough money so that their children can go to school, and so that they can retire. And that's a dramatic change from where we were 10 years ago. And it's all because of shareholder activists who are pushing a political agenda that they can't get through Congress into the boardroom and then hoping that that gets pushed down onto the American people through uh, corporations. So let me see if I can frame this. What you're talking about is shareholder capitalism where we're interested in management teams that invest in products and services that create a high return on capital and return a good uh, either dividend or increase in value to shareholders. And so they become, it increases their wealth. It's their money. They'd like to, it, most of it was like more rather than less. So that's a pretty simple, hard to execute, but a very simple aim. On the other hand, we've got what's now been fashioned, which I guess I'd call stakeholder capitalism. I, mean, I, don't, I don't guess it is called that. And I think Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum was the 
has been a major, if not the initial proponent of uh, stakeholder capitalism. And that's where a lot of this nonsense about doing these other things uh, has crept in, and that's where it does hurt investor returns. Have you guys done any work on, on how much lower returns are because people are focusing on ESG and stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism? We, we haven't done any studies, but we cite some studies in some of our yeah. comment letters, and it's very clear. The trend is that the ESG ETFs and mutual funds underperform the broader market. And not only do they underperform the broader market, but the fee structure is higher in, in terms of a passive investment. Well, there's a dirty little secret that Wall Street's been always alert to marketing opportunities, has been slapping the ESG label on on uh, portfolio after portfolio after portfolio. And because it's a green portfolio, if you just take a regular index portfolio, what's the fee on that? One-tenth of a percent or one, you know, 10 or 15 basis points? ESG, it's closer to three-quarters of a percent or almost a full percent in many cases because it's, uh, I guess, they're curating uh, uh, vir you know, uh, ESG-sensitive firms. I think, you know, the main concern for investors and where what your audience should be attuned to is that we investors want to have choice. If you want to go and choose to put your money into a green company and you that has prospects of possibly, you know, hitting it big in the future and looking at it as a lottery ticket, maybe it's in the solar industry or somewhere else, you should be able to do that. If you want to be able to put your money in an oil company, you should be able to do that. If you want to put it into a car company, it's fine. Investor choice needs to be preserved. And what I think that this group of activists and people who are trying to push politics into our financial markets, I think their end game is that, so that you do not have this choice, that every single company is forced to adhere to the principles that underlie ESG, and therefore they can control how capital is allocated. And to me, this is, this is the big concern. Firms need to be able to operate at their own leisure, in their industries, so that they can compete and bring returns to shareholders. They shouldn't be thinking about cultural and political issues when they make those decisions, hiring, capital, uh, capital outflows, research and development. Those, ultimately, you're trying to get small companies to become big companies because that's what helps the community. Look at Northwest Arkansas, Walmart, Tyson Food, J.B. Hunt. Look, that, the, the amount of wealth that has been created there because small firms went public back in the 70s with a disclosure uh, prospectus that big. It was 20 pages, the Walmart disclosure prospectus. Now today, they're, they're upwards of 300 pages, and they're only going to get more and more convoluted after this SEC's done uh, finalizing its rule set to, to push people into more and more disclosures, which no one reads except for lawyers who charge $2,000 an hour to read it and to write it. So I think all of this gets to the point of why are we doing this to our capital markets? Ours are the most deepest and liquid in the world, and they're the most vibrant. And all we're doing is trying to poke holes by heaping on more and more regulation and now injecting politics into the public company space. And this is something that uh, I think I think should trouble every every American because it's it's politics belong at the voting booth. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here uh, with Chris Icavella, Icavella, uh president of the American Securities Association. And 
we're very quickly getting into uh, the fact that our, the regulation and the of our, of, by regulatory agencies and the and the investment styles of a lot of the big investment firms uh, pushing towards ESG woke investing is really hurting the little guy investors in terms of the returns you can expect when you entrust your money with a broker or, or somebody else with your portfolio. Uh, one of the things that st is striking, Chris, is that the number of public companies today is roughly half what they were, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? And, you know, I the factors that I think, speaking to your regulatory issues, we had Sarbanes-Oxley, which came out, which made it very tough, I guess in response to Enron, um, made it very tough, a lot of regulatory issues, most of which wouldn't have stopped an Enron to begin with, but they got piled on. And then we ended up with Dodd-Frank, and then we ended up with an aggressive Securities and Exchange Commission uh, developing rules and regulations that you open with. And so nobody really wants to be public anymore. I mean, is that? That's, that's a big problem. The public companies that have actually <coughs> been coming into our markets as of late, ushered in by Wall Street and the two New York stock exchanges are Chinese. Those are the IPOs that are coming in here, and they're being pushed on the American investor. And this is another area where my organization and me personally have been very active in saying, what are we doing here? We're going to send money from the United States to China to develop their economy, to fund the Chinese Communist Party, because every single company is controlled in one way or another by the Chinese Communist Party, whether someone's on their board, whether they hold a de minimis amount of shares in the company, or whether they're part of the military industrial apparatus out there that, that the CCP controls. What, what, what company in China is not part of the military? I mean, they, in effect, they control every company because every company is supposed to be putting the interest of the CCP first and foremost. That's right. And that's that's an ideology in the United States that has to change because there is a belief. Ideology of investing in these companies. In, in, in investing in these companies, but also thinking that the, if you open up our markets and our way of life and our society to, to communists, that it's going to influence them to be less communist. That hasn't worked. We, we were talking earlier about trade, treaties and trade agreements. In the capital markets, the idea was you have a flow of capital. Free flow of capital gets to its most highest and efficient use, and that could be across the globe. Well, generally, that's, that's correct, and I, and I subscribe to that. I don't believe in capital controls. However, when you have a country with, governed by the CCP that doesn't adhere to any of the international rules, laws, or norms that the rest of the countries in the world adhere to, why are we giving them access to American capital and, and, and allowing them to fund their military and economic rise with our money? And so this has become a, a huge issue for us. And, and Wall Street continues to bring IPOs. There was three of them this year that were done on the NASDAQ. On NASDAQ. What, what, what companies? What type of companies? Uh, three Chinese companies. companies. Yes. Three Chinese yeah. tech companies? Yeah. And, I, and so... <laughs> You know, our, uh, my view here is we started this uh, pushing back on this under the Trump administration, and he got it very quickly, and his administration got it very quickly, and we were able to get Chinese military 
companies, Chinese oil companies, uh, the aviation companies out of our capital markets. They're now gone and suspended from the capital markets. But Alibaba's in there, JD.com, and all of these others who have access to technology and personal information on Americans are still in our capital markets. And you, you just have to say, what is the point of not growing the United States of America and pushing capital into small businesses around this country? What about the rule that was pushed, and I was surprised the Biden administration, it started with Trump and the Biden administration kept it, pushed where they, we now have to have uh, proper audits of Chinese companies because it wasn't just so much that these Chinese companies were doing things that might might be harming America's interests, particularly if they're in part of their military industrial complex. But we didn't know what we were investing in. We didn't have any good numbers. They wouldn't disclose the, the financials. We didn't have any audit work papers. You know, I, it kind of offends me. I used to, I worked my way through business school teaching accounting to accounting majors. And so I, I probably know too much about it. And the idea you invest in a company and not have a good, a good audit is, is, that's not what you do. So uh, did we make some progress on that, or is that, that, that's fallen out of the headlines recently. Where, where is that now? So, I mean, you're absolutely right, and that was the, the point that we, we started to make was uh, why U.S. companies don't get to tell our regulator, no, you can't look at our financials. You can't see the invoices that underlie our sales. Uh, that doesn't happen in America. Our companies have to comply with, with all of the Sarbanes-Oxley laws, with accounting rules. They can't claim their state secrets. Right, that's right. And, and, <laughs> but yet the Chinese companies, and they still are claiming their state secrets, their national security privilege. I don't personally understand how the PCAOB and the SEC were able to conduct full audits of these work papers during a full COVID lockdown in mainland China. PCOB oversees all the financial, all the auditing firms and sets, basically sets all the rules. That's right. So is that so? Have we begun to fix that, or is that still something that we need to be at the barricades fighting? No, uh, Senator Kennedy led the charge and passed a bill out of Kennedy the from Louisiana. That's right, Senator yeah. John Kennedy, and <clears throat> passed a bill uh, that passed the Senate 100 to zero, and it had full backing in the House. And what it did was it was called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, and then last year we passed the Accelerating Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Essentially what it did was say, any foreign company that is blocking us from being able to see work papers and, and uh, understand the true financial condition of companies that are listed in the U.S. capital markets has two years to stop doing that or else they're going to get delisted. And they've uh, it forced the SEC to put out a list of all of these companies that are out there and also part of this bill, there's supposed to be disclosure of who's on the boards uh, of these foreign companies so that we start to get at the fact that Chinese Communist Party members are on there, although they've... Which we already know. They've moved on, and now they've decided that they'll just hold a very small amount of shares that well, don't it, act it, as it, control. It, it, it seems like we have these headlines, and it seems like there's some sort of solution, and next thing you know... The Chinese have reworked it, and so they ended up with, with what they always wanted. I, I, wasn't Deloitte, one of the big four accounting firms, recently um, put in the penalty box in China, prohibited from doing audits because they trumped up some charge that there was a, a bad audit of a company, and so they didn't want that U.S.-based company uh, 
doing business in China, even though it had like 45 offices in China and was largely staffed by Chinese people. Yeah. Well, and, and also on, to add one more point to that, the Chinese Communist Party requires employees who work in audit firms, and particularly audit firms associated with the United States audit firms, according to an FT article, to wear their Chinese Financial Times. Financial Times article, to wear their Chinese Communist Party pin in the office. <laughs> to, to let everybody else know. What's that look like? Yeah. Do you, have you ever seen a Chinese comedy? Yeah, it's just a red I, pin I, I with a flag on it. So, <laughs> I, uh, you know, what I think is you cannot trust any numbers that come out of China. Yeah. You cannot trust the, the data, the financials, whatever they tell us. And people who invest in Chinese companies do so at their own risk. But a lot of Americans were doing so unknowingly because Chinese companies were being stuffed into... ESG funds, S&P well, funds. Let's talk about the Morgan Stanley Index. There's an international index that covers all these, all the countries all over the world, and it's used in part. As, what's the government? The the, the government, all the gov, all the federal government pensions are controlled by an agency. I don't remember the name. Do you, which, you were you were active on this. Oh, uh, the TSP plan. TSP plan. Yeah, that's right. And what was happening is that Chinese companies were being uh, thrift savings plan. Thrift savings plan were put into the thrift savings plan because they were part of the Morgan Stanley index, and Morgan Stanley wasn't doing any due diligence about, you know, whether the, you know, about they they were basically agnostic about whether they're Chinese or not. So we had a lot of federal employees whose 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 savings were invested in Chinese companies. That's right. The MSCI International Index was part of their investing portfolio, and that included a did, number of did, Chinese Did we companies. get that rolled back? There was a big, big fight uh, after, six months ago. It fight. hasn't been rolled back. It has not been rolled back. We still have an issue there. There are still people that are very okay, upset so about it. Okay, so we're still investing in Chinese companies through the Thrift Savings Plan, and we're still, uh, uh, <laughs> we're still looking at dubious audit, audited statements from these same Chinese companies. And uh, it doesn't look like we've made much progress. No, and when you ask the exchanges why they're not delisting these companies, because a lot of them have been frauds, outright frauds, and that's where we started from when we helped uh, Senator Kennedy and others move that bill through Congress. We said these are frauds. You had luck in coffee. It went public at $20 a share. Uh, there's a pharmaceutical company. Essentially what happens is when the useful life of these companies is over, the Chinese Communist Party takes the money, and the American taxpayer, uh, American investor, takes the hit. Well, as an investor, I can simply say to most people who are listening, I would the political issues, the security issues are quite real, but also it's been a pretty lousy place to invest. I mean, the returns have not been that good, and you get tremendous government risk. You had, for example, if you the the private tutoring business was very big in China, and. Uh, because of political concerns or because they, I don't remember exact motivation, but the Chinese Communist Party shut down all the private tutoring businesses that were publicly traded, that had a lot of private equity investors in it, and they got wiped out. And it was an arbitrary stroke of the pen that took an entire industry uh, um, you know, out of business. That's right. And, I, and, and they've done a lot of the same, the same of the technology companies there that they're, they're concerned about uh, getting too frisky and outside the CCP control. And all those points are, are very valid points and important points. And to bring it full circle back to the ESG front, it is beyond me 
how anybody could claim that they're investing in a socially responsible product when they put money into a Chinese company that's owned by a regime that commits genocide against its own people. Well, and if you care about the environment, they're only building one coal plant a week. That's right. <laughs> so, so not, you know, not that I think coal, I don't think coal is particularly the issue, but you know, people who believe in that do, and they're absolutely hypocritical. But that's and and that's a, another point we've been trying to make as to why the ESG agenda is more of a business proposition than it is uh, an idea to change the world through through public companies. So you have a business proposition that Wall Street has jumped on 100%, driven by activists who are trying to push a political agenda into our capital markets, and that makes a marriage that is really pressuring a lot of institutions, public companies, to, to either adopt some of these policies or say that they're not against those policies and, and to conform. Otherwise, they could be on the blacklist for not being able to raise capital. Of course, of course part of the, I mean, in the, in the good old days, you know, and you and I shared before the show, I mean, we're both come from a libertarian free market background. In the good old days, the paradigm was you had these, these hardy entrepreneurs and their businesses, their you know, private sector businesses, and then you had the, the regulators, the overreaching regulators, and there was always this tension between the, the regulators and the, and, the, and the hardy entrepreneurs. Well, now that's not so much the case, particularly among the, fortune, among the top 500 or 1,000 companies in America. A lot of their management teams have gone very woke as well. And so they're not, they're not really pushing back against this. I mean, look at Delta Airlines, look at Coca-Cola, look at Disney. I mean, how do you, you're, you're in the middle of a fight and I think we got to figure out, you know, how we can win. But if you got the companies who are willingly going along with this, how do we, how do we stop that? Well, I think it's, it's up to the consumer because people vote with their money. And I think that the, the consumer needs to pay attention to, to the Consumer political. or investor. Consumer or investor needs to pay attention to whether or not firms are getting involved in politics. There are a number of firms out there who are resisting to be pushed into politics by woke employees or by outside forces and saying, look, that's not our role. We have customers who are Republican. We have customers who are Democrats. Yeah. We have employees that are both. We do not want to offend people. We just want to do our business. And I think that that's probably the best path for people to take. If you choose to go down a political path, then you're alienating half the country. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of business sense to me. And I, I'll quote something that Michael Jordan said when I was growing up, and people pushed on him saying, why, why aren't you using your position of power to, to inject race into the conversation? And he said, because, half, because the entire country buys Nikes, and I don't want to alienate it. Well, and, and, and now we have Nikes in big time in China. <laughs> That's right. Well, Nike, Apple, Starbucks, yeah. Tesla. And, and you know, as, an, as a shareholder in these companies, you have to analyze what's the risk. What's going to happen to any company that has a substantial amount of their revenue or cash that's in China if China quarantines Taiwan? And the United States reacts even remotely close to the same way that that it did when Russia invaded Ukraine. That capital is gonna stay there, and those companies are gonna to have to take massive losses because they're not gonna be able to get the capital out and the Chinese won't let them. Why would they let that money leave? They don't let it leave now. And so 
those companies who are there are going to get vilified. There, there are going to be sanctions that they're not going to be able to get around. And that is going to be, have a direct effect on the price of the, of the shares that are in our marketplace. Specifically talking about in the case, in the event something happens with Taiwan, we end up in a more of a hot war with China, all these companies' investments are going to be stranded. Yes. They're cash, too. They have a lot of cash that they claim on their balance sheets right now when they report their Qs and Ks that is foreign cash that's sitting in communist China. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here talking with Chris Icavella, who's president of the American Securities Association. And we've wandered into the thorny problem of, of what do we do about China as investors and as patriots and how we uh, extricate ourselves from uh, a lot of the deep involvement that we've had that's been built up over the last uh, 15, 20, 25 years. I mean, one of the issues, Chris, is that you take a company like Apple, they build their iPhone. They build their iPhone almost entirely in China. Tim Cook, who's now the CEO of Apple, made his career developing relationships inside China. And um, A, he's got a lot of personal connections there, real deep, deep friendships. And B, they can't move the iPhone operation outside of China. They're just not the, just not, they can't find the technical or the manufacturing expertise to do that. How do you, you know, so if, 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 if I made you CEO of Apple tomorrow, how would you, how would you handle that, even if they wanted to? I think he's, I think he's starting to, uh, they're, they're starting to get relationships yeah. in India uh, and in other Southeast Asian, and I think not just Apple, all of the, our multinationals that, that strongly shifted their growth models towards China are rethinking it right now. And we are, we're getting perilously close to a point here where you, you have this union between Russia and China and Iran that is trying to test the geopolitical power of the United States. <clears throat> and investors and capital is starting to realize that. And I think that as that happens, you're going to see more and more pressure from investors on CEOs and on boards, not about the social issues, about what's going to happen to the price of your stock in this event, because this isn't a black swan event. This is something that actually could happen. And they may not invade. They may just quarantine. They may stop the, the Taiwanese from, from being able to conduct their free trade, and they may keep all the, the semiconductors inside of that country and keep them for themselves. That would be hostile towards our interests. The United States would have to respond in some way, probably economically probably through sanctions. But that will have a ripple effect on every multinational company that has capital locked up there. And people aren't talking about this risk, and it's a real one. Well, we are. We are. Yeah. We're trying to get the word out. <laughs> I'm, and I'm, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna take the side of all these multinationals. I'm not particularly, but I do believe they've got, if you know, having run a company to get yourself extricated from China is 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 not a next year kind of thing. It's a next decade kind of thing. You, you know, if even then you can do it. Um, now, of course, Xi, President Xi of China, I think he's kind of he'd like to he'd like to batten down the hatches a bit, and he's not really welcoming foreign investors in as much as his predecessors. Yeah, they're turning inward for their growth. Yeah. Um, 
so coming back to the domestic world, what are what are the big issues for your association, and what are you what are you trying to accomplish uh, here in Washington? Well, I think you know we've we've talked about some of the political, the cultural, the social issues, but there are also some national security issues that uh, are implicated with some of the SEC rules, and, and one of them, which are your uh, viewers may know about, or uh, and if they don't, I'm, uh, I'm going to give them a, a quick little lesson on it. Is, Do it. Is uh, uh, it's called the Consolidated Audit Trail. This is an SEC. A, consol rule. a consolidated audit trail. Consolidated. Okay, audit trail. you're going to need to explain. So this inside one. of there was a uh, an event called the Flash Crash that happened about ten years ago, where yeah. where inside of a second, stock prices went up dramatically and then went down dramatically, and it brought the whole market down with it. And that caused Congress to say, wait a minute, what happened here? How did all of this happen? And the SEC couldn't answer the question because the national market system that we have is fragmented. So they said, well, we need to have something that brings all of this data together so we can see how the market's money's flowing and where orders are entered and, and have the complete picture. That's fine. That seems reasonable. It sounds okay because you're trying to conduct surveillance on our markets to make sure that they're safe protect the integrity of the market, make sure no one's manipulating it. However, as all regulators tend to do, they overreach. And in this case, what happened is, is that the SEC decided to add to this rule, to, to its surveillance capabilities, the ability to collect all of the personal and financial information of every investor who has a share of stock in our capital markets. So if you have any accounts with a broker-dealer, all of your personal and financial information is being required to be sent to a database that's being housed here in Washington, D.C. and run by a self-regulatory organization called FINRA, who's going to actually monitor for it and supposedly has the cybersecurity capability to protect our data, which we dispute wholeheartedly. Uh, and so now, instead of your information being decentralized among broker-dealers all over the country, uh, if Bill, I'm sure you as an investor have accounts with multiple folks. You're now going to have one account number that the government can see your complete financial picture, and it's associated with your personal information. So when a hack occurs, could be from cyber criminals, could be from state-sponsored actors in Russia and China, all they have to do is go to one place, and when they hack in, they broke the code, and they can see everything that's going on with your identity and your wealth. And I think that this is something that we've been pushing back on. We sued the SEC on it, uh, and we're about to sue, uh, have a, customers are, are very angry about it, and so, we believe they're going to sue again. So FINRA stands for what? Uh, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association. And it, you say it's not itself, it's, it's independent. Is it, is it a creation of Dodd-Frank, or who, who governs it? Who funds it? So the SEC, it has to register with the SEC, and the members of FINRA are broker-dealers. So broker-dealers, which are my members, are required to comply with the rules of the SEC and of FINRA. And in this case, FINRA is the entity that's going to enforce the SEC's rules if we don't send our customers' data to this database. But who does the FINRA report to, the broker-dealers or to somebody else? To, to the SEC. To the SEC? Yes. They have a, a license to become a self-regulatory agency from the SEC. So how different is this from, I mean, it, it seems to me like we're, I'm, I'm worried about central bank digital currency. 
And I think a lot of us are beginning to realize that's, that, that's, that's a very terrifying thought. We'll get into that in a second. But this would be similar with all your securities holdings. I mean, the, you know, the SEC would know individually what you own, what you're buying, what you were selling. And it seems a short step to decide, well, gee, we don't think you ought to be investing in hydrocarbons or we don't think you ought to be investing in the gun industry, or we think that it ought to be, you know, that you ought to be steering your capital towards socially approved uh, investments. I mean, am I just uh, imagining, or do we think this is where this could go? Well, when you have, when you have a government regulator that has a political motive, they, they certainly can use this data for purposes other than market surveillance. And that's why we object. I mean, they're collecting all of this data from everybody without any evidence of wrongdoing. It's perfectly reasonable for a regulator to have the authority to, to open an investigation if they believe that somebody has committed insider trading or tried to manipulate the markets. We want them to do that. We want our markets policed and protected. We don't want SEC staff contractors, FINRA, having access to all of our personal information and being able to see and look into what our portfolio holdings are. And can you imagine if the SEC actually entered into a memorandum of understanding with the IRS, then the government would have a true and complete picture of not only your securities holdings, but also any businesses that you might own that are private, any real estate that you may own. It's a complete picture of what your wealth is. Do you see that happening? I hope not. Okay. Well, I, I think it's if we don't change, if we don't have a new uh, administration, I think that I think this administration's got a whole of government agenda for equity, a whole of government agenda for climate, and I don't, I don't, I think there's a third thing they've got a whole of government agenda for, but it's uh, it's 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 it, it's it's overtly political, and this is where we're getting at what we talked about the begin at the beginning is that. Uh, there are all these political agendas that are driving our financial institutions and our regulatory agencies. That's right. And, and, and that's what our institution has stood for, is that there should not be any politics in public companies. There shouldn't be politics in the world of finance. The, what, what it's devolving into is red states, blue states, red companies, blue companies, red capital, blue capital. That is entirely in opposition to what the Commerce Clause in our Constitution was about. It was about the free flow of capital, commerce, and people across state borders to make our union stronger and more healthy. So how do the big firms react to all this? The J.P. Morgans, the Wells, the Citigroup, Bank of America? Seems I'll answer my own question. Seems to me... I forget, you've got a day job where you've got to report to all these people. You're in the industry. I don't want to get you in trouble. But it seems to me <clears throat> that they're all in on this agenda. I mean, Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, and you know, JB Mar JP, Jamie Dimon's got more of a, I think, attractive, tough guy image, but he's not, when it comes to policy, he, he's willing to unbank people just as readily as anybody else. Uh, um, you know, Brian Moynihan's leading this $50 trillion initiative to uh, uh, on climate, and he says the governments don't have enough money, and so the banking system's going to have to provide a lot of the money to convert our 
industry from hydrocarbons to uh, wind and solar, which we know will be a catastrophe. So I'm I'm, I'm editorializing, but in a in a, in, a, in a question, but aren't the big guys pretty much part of the problem? Yeah, I think Wall Street has adopted the view that you articulated earlier of Klaus Schwab from Davos. Yeah. And that's that coupled with a lot of the shareholder activists that are well-funded in our country is injecting all of these political issues into the boardroom. And now I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, but you have the red state governors and you have a lot of red state organi uh, conservative organizations that have said enough is enough and are now pushing back, and you're seeing shareholder proposals going the other way. Again, shareholder proposals cost anywhere between $150,000 to $250,000 to defend each one and to get proxies, send out uh, information on the, on the actual details of the proposal to investors. So it's not cost-free to just put this into uh, the ether of our public companies. And the SEC exacerbated what I'm talking about here because Gary Gensler changed the rules about what's an acceptable shareholder proposal from having to have an economic impact on the way uh, the businesses run and the impact of monetarily to, to shareholders to any shareholder proposal can be accepted so long as it has a broad, quote, broad societal impact. So you went from monetary focus to, to broad political. societal impact, which is whatever you want it to be. Yep, and depending on who sits in the White House and who and has appointed a person from their party to head the SEC. Yeah. And that's why what we're talking about and what you're talking about about this this arc that is that is pushing political agendas into our capital markets, that just makes it easier and easier and, and it emboldens uh, groups with a lot of money on both sides of the aisle to now try to put their shareholder proposals in and waste the time of management and distract management. As you know, being a former CEO, your most important resource as a manager is your time. <laughs> well, that's true. I ran a public company, uh, gosh, a long time ago. And it was back in the, I don't know, I remember 2006, 2007, something like that. But even then, we were massively regulated and had massive numbers of things we had to deal with. And I remember the one board meeting, we'd gone over all these things, complying with this and doing that, and we'd taken about um, an hour and a half. And I said, well, I, I, I hate to ruin a perfect board meeting, but we're going to have to talk about our business. <laughs> And it was good. I mean, the business was good, but you get you, even then the time and attention that that gets that gets sucked into doing these things is real. And I think that I didn't really develop something. And we got to get out of here in a second. But we didn't really get the climate disclosure disclosure rule six billion dollars. There's the dollar cost, but it's also the way it changes the behavior of the companies that are writing all these disclosures for climate. And the net effect of it is all these climate disclosures tend to get you steered away from things like hydrocarbons. I mean, anything that's been deemed a bad thing, that's a negative, and that's seen as a potential risk factor. Um, and so you're building climate change into the risk factor in your business model, 
and I don't know there are a lot of businesses that practically speaking, you know, have that kind of risk associated with it, but what's your thought? Could you amplify? As we we loudly articulated in our comment letter on the climate disclosure rule, this is rewriting the concept of materiality. If it's material to a company's business, they're already disclosing it. But why the SEC feels the need to impose a standard like this on every single public company when it's not material to their business and it has no bearing on it justifies why we believe it's just overtly political. The concept of materiality works. It protects investors. It, it protects the companies. It reduces unnecessary costs as it relates to disclosure. And that, in turn, puts more money into the company's coffers to invest back into the company or to return to shareholders. Oof. This is going to take money out of it because it's unnecessarily imposing a standard of immateriality on every single company. Well, let's take a big retailer, for example. As I understand it, they've got to get it. It's not just whether they have climate exposure, but do any of their uh, suppliers have climate issues? And so they've got to go into all their, their, supply, their chain of supply and disclose what sort of things are affecting them. The cost and the and the time to do that is astronomical. Well, exactly, and that's why you've had a lot of uh, farmers and private companies saying, "Hey, you know, the SEC is not allowed to regulate private companies." And then public companies saying, "Look, we don't know exactly what the supply chain, the the greenhouse gas emission impact is of all the way down the supply chain. It'd be impossible." for us to get to know that. So I didn't, I missed this. So in effect, you've got a public company with this disclosure, but the extent their suppliers are private, this gets into their business as well. So it's a way to regulate private companies through the SEC. Gosh, I wish you were cheering me up more, Chris. <laughs> Give us reasons for hope. What do we, what's your, what do we, what's, uh, what, what do we hope we can accomplish uh, in the near term? I think that the reasons for hope are that the more balance that comes back to Washington, you have some balance with a, with, uh, in Congress now. I think we have an election coming up in a couple of years, and these issues are front and center. I think the cost that's being imposed on our economy by regulation, and specifically by the SEC, uh, are going to come into focus. And people are really going to start to think about whether or not it's prudent to continue down this path. And I, I think that the agenda that has been pushed by the regulators across the government, and particularly in the financial space, uh, is, is hurting the country. And it needs to be changed. And I think the average American investor is waking up to it. Like what I said before was you have red state governors who are pushing back, red state uh, financial officers, treasurers. You have red state organization, or conservative organizations are pushing back. Independent organizations are pushing back. It's not just, it's not just a, there, there's a number of folks even in the Democratic Party that do not agree with the progressive left's push of all of these issues into our capital markets. And I think that the more reasonable people who view this and say, what is the utility of all this? Is the cost really worth the benefit? The Supreme Court's also going to get involved here. And they, they decided a case last year called a major questions doctor in West Virginia versus EPA. This climate disclosure rule falls squarely in that category. Uh, does, has the SEC been given explicit authority from Congress to regulate 
environmental issues? I don't think so. Mm. I think that falls under the EPA. Uh, it's the same in, in the, uh, the investor privacy issue I talked to you about the other day. The Congress never told them, go create a database of every American and collect all their personal information. So you, you have the courts who are also stepping in to stop some of this regulatory overreach. Yeah. And I think that's the most important uh, thing that, that American people can look forward to right now because the courts are, are upholding the law. Well, that's good news. Uh, a court that's upholding the law. And on that, on that, that upbeat note, thanks, Chris. <laughs> uh, this has been The Bill Walton Show, and I've been here with Chris Icovella, president of the American Securities Association, and we've been talking about uh, um, really big picture, all the things that are affecting our money and our ability to invest successfully and, and sort of the forces arrayed against it. And I think Chris is one of the real heroes for, for bringing out, bringing these uh, ideas to light. So Chris, uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been fun. So anyway, thanks all of you for joining. And as always, you know, you can find us on all the major podcast platforms on YouTube, Rumble. Um, we're on CPAC now on, on Monday nights. Uh, we're also on Substack where you can find uh, all of our shows and as well as the website. And uh, please uh, give us your comments about this show and other shows you'd like to see us doing. We pay a lot of attention to what you want to learn about and uh, program accordingly. So anyway, thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.